to welcome Living Hope. I am Pastor Tim, a joy to be with you this morning. If you're visiting, welcome. Pray that you are encouraged and blessed in the Lord. There's a connection card in your bulletin. I would love to invite you to fill that out, either online or on paper. Uh, I want to just highlight a few things on the community news section of your bulletin. If you don't have a bulletin, uh, open up your phone, look up our website, findlivinghope.com, find the events page, all the details and info about what's coming up is on there. Um, Next Sunday is a fifth Sunday. There are five Sundays in October. Anytime there's a fifth Sunday, we give an opportunity uh, to have all of our children with us. So preschool through sixth grade will be in service with us next week. Uh, For those that have little ones, you might consider bringing some crayons or uh, some quiet, soft toys for them to play with. We'll have a coloring page and an outline for the kids, but it's a joy to be together, young and old, as a family of faith, to worship and hear the word together next week. Um, The end of the month, uh, October 31st, uh, we're going to have one of our big outreaches of the year over at Kohler Point as hundreds and hundreds of kids are out uh, begging for candy. We're going to use it as an opportunity to bring some light into the darkness. And so this is not a Halloween event or a Halloween celebration. This is a celebration of Christ, an opportunity to bring light. And so regardless of your own family's uh, traditions or habits on that night, your own convictions about Halloween, um, hope that you'll be in prayer for us as we seek to to give grace and love uh, and to uh, shed the light of Christ to those um, in need. Um, Additionally, in a few weeks, on November 13th, we're going to be doing a special seminar on a Sunday evening afternoon from four to six um, called the identity crisis responding to gender confusion with grace and truth as you know uh, transgenderism is more and more common around us both as a movement and in the lives of of young and old that are hurting and struggling and so uh, pastor matt and i and the elders are in prayer um, in study to address how do we as Christians respond to this. And we're going to look both at the movement, and, and so Pastor Matt's doing some good hard work looking at the cultural conditions, some of the history. What led us to this moment? What led us as an American culture to want to now this ideology is embraced, and not only embraced, but, but um, you know, uh, pushed forward. And so we're going to look at how we, how we understand and process and respond as a, to the movement But then also, how do we respond to people that are hurting, people that are in crisis, people that are struggling with the uh, confusion about their identity? And so those are two very different things that require different responses. And so we're going to look at each in the truth of God's word and in the grace of his love and the hope of redemption. So I hope that you'll join us. We'd love to invite our teens uh, to come out. Many, many of them um, are dealing with this uh, on a daily basis in their schools, with friends, um, on social media. So um, we're certainly not going to answer every question or address every issue, but we're going to do our best to, to come with the wisdom of Scripture. So be in prayer for us as we um, prepare for that and hope that you will join us. Lots else going on. Check your bulletin. Check out our events page. Follow along. This morning, we are going to continue in our Hebrews series. We are going to be this morning in chapter 5 in the book of Hebrews, this letter uh, that has been written to these Hebrew Christians that are struggling. They're in a bit of a precarious position with their faith. Uh, Some of them are wavering in their faith, and so the letter is written to them and written to us by the grace of God with a vision of a Jesus who is greater, greater than anything that could draw them or draw us away. 
And we saw a few weeks ago in chapter 3 that we are called to hold firm, to hold firm to our confidence in Christ all the way until the end. We saw in chapter 4 that, that we are to be stirred to draw near to the throne of grace, as we heard this morning in the opening of our service, to find mercy and grace in time of need. See, listen, the Lord does not want you to waver. He doesn't want us to feel insecure about our standing before him. He wants us to rest securely in the work of Christ. And so as we pick up this morning, as we continue in Hebrews 5, we're going to begin in, in verse 11, and we're going to hear this call to find full assurance, full assurance of hope in the work of Christ. That means that we can be confident, we can be at peace, trusting not in our ability, but trusting in Christ to hold on to us. See, even when we fail to hold on to him, he holds on to us. His promise to hold on to us securely through all of eternity is firm and set. And so this morning, you can see on the outline on the screen, we're going to break down our passage in three different sections. We're going to read it in three parts this morning. First, we'll see that in order for us to, to be men and women that are fully holding on to the assurance of hope, first of all, we need to train. We need to train for maturity. The second section is going to call us to feast, to feast fully on all of the work of Christ. And then lastly, to be diligent, to be diligent in our faith. So let's ask the Lord to help us, and then we'll dive in and read this first section. God, I thank you for your presence that is already among us, not just individually in our hearts, but as we gather together, we form the body of Christ, and the Spirit of God is present among us in a unique way. We thank you, God, for the songs and the prayers and the worship that we've had this morning, and that we do believe that the Spirit of Jesus, that the very presence of God has, has filled our hearts and filled this act of worship. And we ask now that that same Holy Spirit would lead us to grace and truth. Holy Spirit, that you would come and unpack for us your word, that it would bring clarity and life to us, that it would stir us to faith, stir us to diligence. God, we pray for those that are here this morning that may be wavering in what it means to be a follower of Christ, that may be wavering in their commitment to the Lord Jesus. God, would you call them to turn and to run to you, to hold on to you, to lean in to the work of Christ. Be present among us, we ask. Open our, our, our hearts, open our eyes, in Jesus' name, amen. So jumping in here in verse 11, after he's just finished the section on Jesus as the greater high priest, he says in verse 11, about this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Amen. We'll pause there for now. So, so this, this uh, verse here in 11 is kind of a bit of a diversion. He says we have much more to say about Jesus as the great high priest, and he's going to pick back up on that theme in chapter 7. But he kind of takes a diversion, and he says, for now, it's hard to explain to you because you've become dull of hearing. And translate that as you've become lazy in your understanding, right? And you read that and you think, ouch, that's a, that's a bit harsh, Right? The readers are, are being scolded. They're being scolded. But I think you'll see as we unpack, it's being done in love, and, and the, the end of this section is going to end on a strong word of optimism and a strong word of hope for the people. 
And so he continues in verse 12 to say, look, you've been Christians for a while now. And by this time, you should be mature enough to teach others about the basic principles of God. The Greek here about, about basic principles is, is referring to the alphabet. Instead, he says, you need someone else to teach you the basic elementary principles of God, right? You should be at the point now where you're teaching other people how to read and write. Instead, you're still learning the ABCs. Like a grown adult, right? It's, it's kind of sad. There's either a problem or they're just super lazy, right? But you don't expect a grown adult to still be working on their ABCs. He, he transitions the metaphor a little bit in verse 13. He says, he says, like an infant, you still need milk. You're so inexperienced, you can't even handle solid food, which he calls there the righteous word. The righteous word of God is, is the solid food of the Christian life that nourishes and strengthens us. Now, look, they're old enough, but by age, they should be eating meat and potatoes, right? But their stomachs can't handle it. They're, they're still working to digest Milk, like a one-month-old, their stomach couldn't handle it if they were to sit down to a, to a full plate of food. And so the author is essentially saying, grow up, grow up, you're immature. He says in verse 14, that's solid food is for people that are mature, right? For those who through constant practice, he says, have trained their senses, they have the ability to discern the difference between what is good and what is evil. And these believers are too immature. They haven't trained through constant practice their senses they're still struggling to distinguish between what's the will of God and what's not what is good and and what is evil and so we see this idea that if we as a people are going to have full assurance of hope that means that we need to train ourselves we need to train ourselves for maturity see listen Christian growth and maturity is not going to happen by accident now listen we're not going to get into how long is the appropriate amount of time to breastfeed a baby Okay, because everybody has different convictions, and some of you breastfed your children for longer. But dare I say, if we see a 10-year-old still breastfeeding, right, there's going to be some, some questions, some concerns, right? It, we, we, have, we have a problem probably on our hands if that 10-year-old has yet to transition to solid food, right? It, it's a little bit disheartening. Something's not right. The only way that that baby is going to grow and mature is to introduce solid foods, and it's the same for us. And so you slowly introduce solid foods to a baby, right? And you start out with those mushy green beans, and then their stomachs get used to it, and then you introduce a little more food. But what's happening? As they're growing, they learn to crawl, they learn to walk, they're using more energy, and so they need more solid food. And so you give them more solid food, and then they can do more and be more active, right? And the food nourishes them to grow, and as they grow, they need more nourishment. Do you see that cycle? If we're going to train for maturity, we need, to, we need to eat solid food. We need to be deep into the Word of God. We need to grow in Christian faith and Christian doctrine and Christian understanding. This righteous word that the author of Hebrews. We cannot be content to simply skim the surface and understand the basic elementary principles of the faith. The ABCs need to be learned. But then from the ABCs, you learn to read and write. Amen? It says they've trained themselves, trained themselves with purpose, with intentionality, eating the right food, doing the right exercises, growing both in theology and in practice, both in our understanding of the word and the will of God and in our participation in our practice of the, the word and the will of God. See, this is more than just learning good Bible knowledge. Lots of smart people understand the Bible that are not living out their faith, that are immature 
Christians, even though they might be knowledgeable, but we need to constantly train ourselves both in solid Christian doctrine and in solid Christian practices to discern what is good, what is evil, where do our hearts go, how do we, how do we walk as men and women of faith. Paul uses the same word for training in 1 Timothy chapter 4, and there he compares our training in godliness to physical training, to the physical training of an athlete. And the word train there in the Greek is where we get our English word for gymnasium and gymnastics. And it refers to the practice of Greek athletes who would strip off their tunic, who would strip off their cloak, and they would train virtually naked to be unencumbered. Right? To do their exercises, to stretch and to lift and to train as athletes unencumbered by the distractions of everyday clothes. But it talks about commitment and consistency. And like an athlete, friends, we need to be constantly practicing and training in the disciplines of the Christian life. If you're an athlete, if you have a student athlete in your home, maybe you've just watched a documentary about athletes, okay, you know that no athlete becomes proficient, becomes excellent through haphazard practice or through half-hearted investment. They are dedicated. Athletes have a purposeful routine of caring for their body, of eating right, their daily practice. And by the Holy Spirit, we too need to strip off those distractions. We too need to grow in discipline through constant practice. We need to develop good habits of the Christian life to grow in maturity. But unfortunately... Many of us don't seem to want to fight our sin that way, don't seem to want to grow in maturity that way, and some of us are just undisciplined and lazy and unmotivated, but others of, others of us, rather than train in the disciplines of the faith, we just say, well, I'm, I'm just going to try harder. And our approach to Christian growth and maturity is just to try harder. I just need to stop losing my temper. I just need to try harder not to look at those images on my phone. And if I just had more willpower, I could be obedient with my eyes. And, and I, I keep getting caught up in gossip at work. I just need to try harder to, to move away from those conversations. But that is not how you grow in Christian maturity. Our speaker at the men's retreat this weekend shared with us about his four sons. And his youngest son is a competitive figure skater on the, the national um, level. Um, Ben, uh, how do you say his last name? Um, uh-oh. Anybody remember the, our, our uh, men's retreat speaker? Anyway, it's going to come up in my notes uh, later on. But his son practices for hours and hours, for years and years, to become a nationally competitive figure skater. And his father said when he was growing up, he never once talked about trying to do a triple axel. He would never come home and say, Dad, I did the single, I did the double, now I'm trying to do the triple. Triple axel is the hardest jump in figure skating. You, you start out going forward, it's the only jump where you apparently leave the, the, the air, leave the ice uh, moving forward, you spin around, it's actually three and a half turns and you end up backwards. He said his son never tried to do a triple axel. He would come home and say, Dad, I'm training to do a triple axel. You see the difference? It's not just willpower, it's practices and behaviors and regimented growth. What we call in the Christian faith, our training, we often call the spiritual disciplines. The spiritual disciplines of the faith, the things that we need to be disciplined in to grow in maturity. Things like studying and meditating on the Word of God. 
Studying and meditating on the Word of God is not an end in and of itself. It's a discipline. It's a mechanism of training to grow in maturity, to discern good and evil, the will of God. Prayer and fasting is a discipline. It's a practice that we need to, the Scriptures say, constantly devote ourselves to prayer and to fasting. Worship and giving. Worship here on, on a Sunday, but also throughout your week in your private life. Give it, giving financially to the kingdom of God, giving your time and energy, fellowship and accountability. Fellowship does not mean just sitting around the table eating food with other people that happen to be Christians, right? It's an intentional development of relationships, accountability, holding one another accountable, these Christian disciplines, evangelism and serving, using your gifts to serve the church, using, using the, the, the gospel that God's given you to, to reach out to the lost, are disciplines of the faith that will help you to train for maturity. Theologians also call these the means of grace. So these disciplines are the means by which we grow in grace and receive grace. Don't just try harder, train with the disciplines that God has given us. Yesterday at our men's retreat, we hiked up the side of this ridge up to the Appalachian Trail, and it was a beautiful overlook, and we were resting and taking in the sights, and I began to, to talk to one of the young men on the retreat, someone that I didn't know super well, and he was telling me about his, his life and his, his upbringing and his job and his marriage, and, and he began to share with me and get, get kind of real about a struggle that he was having, and at one point he said, yeah, it just kind of is what it is. How many of us have said that, right? It just is what it is. I'm, I'm never going to get over this. It's a, it's a constant struggle in my marriage, in my heart, in my personal life, in my work life. And at one point I paused. I said, man, I'm, I'm going to give you a little bit of a hard, a hard word here. I said, but that comment, it is what it is. I said, that's a lie. That's, that's not true. That, 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 is, that is a lie. It doesn't have to be what it is. Right? Christ can transform you. You can grow, grow. You can change. You can find freedom, whether it's been six months or six years or six decades of hurt, of pain, of sin, of, of defeat. But to do so by God's grace, by his spirit, as you cry out, as you draw near the throne of grace, you need to take initiative. We are called by God to be proactive, to seek him, to find help, to be tapped to be empowered as we eat the solid food of the word, as we grow in maturity, as through the, the powers of discernment we are trained by constant practice, constant practice in the disciplines of the faith. And so as we train and grow in maturity, it brings us assurance. We, we now no longer need to waver or struggle. Do I belong to the Lord? Am I going to make it? Will I hold firm until the end? We grow in assurance and, and our confidence in, in the salvation God has given us begins to stabilize and we become more secure and more confident in the promises of God. Amen? With maturity comes confidence, comes assurance. The passage is going to go on. We, we go now to, to chapter 6, verse 1. As we read that to grow in the full assurance of faith not only means training in maturity, but it means feasting, feasting on the fullness of Christ. Read this section with me in Hebrews 6, beginning in verse 1. It says this, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God out of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, 
and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receive a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. And its end is to be burned. Amen. This is the word of God. This is a hard section of scripture, a section of scripture that theologians have wrestled over, and there are different perspectives. But let's dive into verse 1. Verse 1, again, this idea of the elementary principles. He says, let's leave the elementary introductory teachings about Christ and go on, press on towards maturity. Let's not just keep spinning our wheels every week, laying down the same foundation of the faith. Over and over again, instead of relaying that same foundation, let's build on the foundation, build on the ABCs of the faith. And he's going to share what some of those introductory Christian doctrines are in verses 1 and 2. He shares really three of them. The first is repentance from our dead works and, and the foundation of an initial faith in God, right? That the first building block of the faith is to repent of your dead works and to, and to cry out in faith towards God. Secondly, he says these instructions about washing and the laying on of hands. Now, what does that mean? The word, the word for washing is the plural form of the Greek word we elsewhere translate baptism. Your footnote might say that. And so it's likely here a reference to the Christian rite of baptism and the laying on of hands that would be part of the initial initiation into the Christian community, right? You'd be baptized, they'd lay hands on you, pray for you to come into the faith. And he's saying, look, Christian baptism, as opposed to these ineffective Jewish rituals of washing, because they had their own rituals of washing, and he's saying, no, no, we need to distinguish between these, these empty rituals that don't actually make you clean and the symbol of baptism symbolizing your cleansing in Christ. Thirdly, he talks about teachings about the return of Christ at the end of the age when we'll see the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment for those that don't trust in Christ. And he says these, these doctrines are foundational, right? We need to be clear. He's not dismissing them and saying these are unimportant doctrines. Far from it. They are foundational. They are the foundation of Christian belief and practice. And so the point here in verses 1 to, to 2 is not to move on beyond them and, and as though we're going to build some other building unrelated to these foundational truths. He says, no, these are the foundation. We build up from them. The need for repentance from sin, from turning from our dead works, faith in the work of Christ, looking forward to his return. These truths are the firm and stable foundation on which we build every other doctrine, every other practice of the Christian life. Maturity in Christ is building up from these elementary principles. And he says in verse 3, if God permits, we will do this. We will understand the basic teachings of the faith. We will finally be clear about the ABCs and we'll move on to a maturity. We'll move on to reading and writing and even teaching others to read and write. See, he's hopeful for these Hebrew Christians. But this idea that, that every time we, we fall or we waver, we have to kind of go back and restart with the ABCs. It's not helpful. It's not biblical. It's not God's desire. I remember this woman one time who had made a profession of faith 
She had come to, to faith in Christ, but she was struggling, struggling to come out of the world, and she had a group of friends and, and practices and behaviors from her, her formal life. And every time she would sin, every time she would stumble and return to some aspect of her old life, she would feel like, okay, well, now I've got to go back to the beginning again. I have to start all over. I have to pray again to accept Christ as my Savior, as if for the first time she was praying to receive Jesus. And she would relay that foundation, relay her ABCs, and she would start growing again as as if from scratch. And you can imagine she never made it very far, right? She never matured very much. And this went on for two or three years without any growth or development because she kept relaying the basic foundation of the faith. And finally, I read her this passage. And I said, yeah, you're going to continue to stumble in sin. But every time you sin, every time you struggle, every time you waver, you don't start over again rebuilding that basic foundation because you still belong to Christ. You're still in his building, you're still growing from the foundation that he has built. And so rather than starting over, you continue growing from where you left off, so to speak, from where you already are. You move on from milk to meat as you mature in the faith. And yet some sadly, tragically, never truly learn their ABCs, never truly embrace these fundamental elements of the faith. And what do we see the result in verses 4 through 6? We read this hard warning that they, some, will fall away. And it's interesting in this section in verses 4, 5, and 6, he, he addresses they, not you, because I believe he ultimately has a greater hope, as we'll read for the Hebrew Christians. But he says, take the case of someone who has been enlightened to the truth of the gospel. And they've seen the light of like, yeah, this makes a little bit of sense. But then, he says, they slip back into darkness. Let's, let's take the case of somebody who has been enlightened to the truth of the gospel, but then after some time, and the period of time is not specified, could be a day, could be a week, could be a year, could be five, ten years, but at some point they fall away. And I'll explain again what that means here in a moment. But he says four things about their experience. Look at verses 4 and 5. He describes their experience, their spiritual experience. He says, think of somebody who, first of all, tasted the heavenly gift of salvation. They genuinely know what salvation tastes like. They, they've seen it. They've tasted the sweetness of God's work. Secondly, it says that they share in the presence of the Holy Spirit. That means that they share, in some sense, in the presence and the peace of God's Spirit. They see the Spirit. They experience the Spirit at work in Christian community. They maybe see others touched and changed. They themselves may have their heart warmed by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Fourthly, it says, that, or thirdly, excuse me, they taste of the goodness of God's Word, it says. It means they, they understand that this is rich and this is sweet and this is nourishing. And there's truth here and there's healing in the goodness of God's word. And then fourthly, it says that they taste a bit of God's power. The author here says it's ultimately a power that we won't know in full until Christ returns at the end of the age. But even now, that power is at work in people's lives. And this person experiences a taste of that power. And so we, the author says in verse 6, if a person like this who once saw the light of Christ and had these experiences and then falls away, the author says quite soberly, it's impossible, and the word there means that they are unable, they're powerless to be restored or to be renewed again to repentance and faith. Something has happened in their life that, that makes them unable to be restored to repentance and faith. This is what we call the idea of apostasy. This is certainly not a doctrine to be taken lightly, but it's the idea that some abandon the faith, some desert Jesus in the ultimate sense. 
The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 4 says there will come a time when some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits, that their minds have been clouded, and while they at one point tasted a bit of salvation and the power of God, they can no longer see it, experience it, they, they have been blinded. And so verse 6 says that a person who has abandoned faith in Christ, a person who has so denied Jesus in this way, is guilty of contempt for Christ. And he says it's like those who first arrested, bound, beat, and crucified Jesus. This person is holding Christ up to contempt, publicly shaming him as a false messiah. Essentially saying their actions are attempting to re-crucify Jesus. That's how offensive someone who's gotten so close and then fallen away. They're saying he's a false messiah. Let's crucify him because he didn't save me. And the sober reality of this scripture is that this person has so gravely violated God that they will never repent. In fact, it says that they cannot repent. Tragically, they are cut off. Now, this is a difficult passage, as I've said, but the key question, the question that scholars and interpreters have wrestled with literally for generations and opinions and convictions differ, is who is this passage describing? There's, a, there's basically two options. Option one is that this passage, Hebrews 6, 4, 5, and 6, is describing a true believer. Somebody who says, yes, I truly believed in Christ. He died for me. I repented. I came to Jesus. I belonged to him, but now I have denied him. I have turned away. I have fallen away from the faith. The second option is that this is what we may call a, a false believer, someone who gives the impression of being a believer in Christ externally, someone who may say, you know what, I participated outwardly in the Christian community. Yeah, I made a verbal profession of faith, calling Jesus my Savior. I even had some external change in my behavior. And, and being around the Christian church and faith it made me a little bit different, but it wasn't real, it wasn't internal. I only tasted Christ's work, but then I fell away. See, this person has never fully come to Christ. Now they have permanently left Christ, and they, according to the Scripture, can never come back. Now again, this is a challenging section. We need to remember some of the background of this in chapter 3. If you were here with us when we looked at that section, it also talked about those who, who fall away. And listen, falling away, as described here in Hebrews, is not a reference to sinning. It's not a reference to doubting. It's not a reference to having a rough spot in your faith. It's not a reference to drifting away from Christ. Okay, we read about that in Hebrews as well. But this idea of falling away is a more intentional, more explicit turning, denying Jesus. You remember the tragic example that we read about in chapter 3 of the Israelites. Remember they came out of the Exodus generation. They saw the power of God. They were freed from slavery. They heard the voice of, of God through Moses. They saw the mountain tremble. But then what happened to many of them? They fell away. They no longer believed. And so Hebrews 3.12, look at this verse. We read this a few weeks ago. Take care, brothers, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. This is, this is tragic. But the idea, again, is, is a deliberate turning. This is different than somebody that gets distracted because I get distracted. This is different than someone who is drifting away. This is an active turning, an intentional leaving Christ, forsaking him, denying him in a permanent, irrevocable way. And as we read in chapter 3, it's caused ultimately by a hard heart, by an evil heart, an unbelieving heart, a, a, a rebellious heart. 
Again, just to be clear here, this passage, I don't believe, is describing a struggling Christian. Because if you're, if you're me, if you're like me, that, that may describe you. It's not describing here a struggling Christian. It's describing somebody that has never belonged to Christ, and according to this stern warning, never will belong to Christ. It's describing the condition of somebody who got close to Jesus, who got close to Christian community, who even began to taste the very work of Christ, but then they willfully turned away. They denied Christ and they left him with a hard heart, bitterly disappointed, sadly never returning, saying he's a false Messiah, he might as well be crucified. See, listen, for those who truly belong to Christ, for those of us that that have full assurance of hope, in our salvation, it doesn't mean we just taste Jesus. It doesn't mean we have just tasted the good things of Christ. It must be more than that. Our salvation must be more than just getting a taste. It must be feasting on the work of Christ. Full assurance of faith comes when we feast and eat and digest Jesus and his work in our hearts. It's to be transformed, not to just have light shine on you. Many people who are around the faith see and experience a little bit of light shining on them. It's not just light shining on you. It's the full light of God filling you from head to toe. Amen? From from mind to spirit. Listen, this is not about, the Christian faith is not about just tasting, having a little bite of the word of God and, and tasting salvation, but it's to eat it in full. It's to say, this is, this is my, my life. The word of God is what I live on. The Christian experience in the Christian life is not sharing in the Holy Spirit. That's what it said here in Hebrews, that they've shared. I'm not talking about sharing in the Holy Spirit, as though though I'm hanging out with a group of people who have the Holy Spirit, and I kind of share with them. I I stand next to them and partake and experience a little bit of, of what they have, but it's not really mine. The Christian life is to be filled from head to toe, filled from heart to mind with the transforming power of the Spirit inside of who I am. See, the call of the gospel is not just to taste Christ as your Savior, but to feast on Christ as your Savior. Do you understand the difference that I'm talking about here? Somebody say, I got it. Okay. Well, for those of you who don't, let me unpack this a little bit more. The difference between tasting and feasting. Anybody ever go to a wine tasting... And they have what I believe is called a spit bucket. I've never done this. But you, you sample the wine and you taste it, right? But in an effort not to get drunk, you taste it, you swirl it around, and then you spit it back into the wine bucket, right? You've heard of this practice? Some of you maybe have done it, but you're too embarrassed to admit it. Okay. We'll take another example. I read this week about a woman who owned, owned a bakery and was a, was a cake baker and, and was, uh, you know, well-established. But then at some point she developed an autoimmune disorder and she could no longer digest wheat and dairy. Now, how do you bake cakes without tasting them to make sure that what you're selling is good, right? And so she developed this practice. She would taste the cake. She would taste the icing in her mouth. She would spit it out. She would drink water and gargle and rinse out her mouth to make sure that none of this, what for her was toxic, would get into her system. Now listen. That is not how God intended wine and cake to be experienced, to be enjoyed, to be digested, right? If that's all you're ever doing, if you take a bite of cake and you chew it and swirl it around and you spit it out, you slosh out it with water, 
You're not getting it. That's not how God created food to be enjoyed, to be experienced, to be processed. The reality is that this is how some of us are experiencing Christ. This is how some people experience the Christian faith. They take a bite. Maybe they chew a little bit, but they never swallow. They never digest the word of God and the gospel. They never fully feast on Christ as their Savior. And so be warned, this passage says, and it's a warning that each of us need to hear today, that only those who truly feast on Christ belong to him. Listen, it is not enough to understand the gospel, you must believe it. It's not enough just to understand that Jesus was a Savior who died on a cross as a substitute for sin, who rose again in victory. You must believe it. And trust in it. It is not enough to simply feel bad for your sin. Many, many people, most people feel bad when they hurt others. It's not about just feeling bad. It's about truly repenting. That means turning from your sin. That the guilt and the weight of your brokenness before God, the harm that you've done to others, causes you to to repent and to, to run to God for forgiveness. It is not enough for you just to affirm that this is true. You must embrace it and live it out. It's not enough for you just to attend a church service even regularly and and to be around the people of God. You must be adopted into the family of God. It's not enough that you observe the work of the Holy Spirit. You personally must experience his transforming work in your heart to feast on Christ, to believe in him, to come to him and receive him fully. Receive him fully this morning as Savior. Submit to him fully as Lord. Trust him. Trust him with your whole self, not just with your taste buds, but that you would digest him, that he would nourish you, that salvation would fully be yours. Sadly, many only taste, and at some point, they fall away. I remember a man who years ago was a guy that I had met in the community, didn't know him well, but, but his family showed up at church one week, and they came for a few weeks. And one Sunday, we were back in the old, old gymnasium, as I affectionately now refer to as the dungeon, because that's what it feels like. And we were back in the old, in the old gym where we worshiped, and we gave a call for prayer one Sunday after church. And this man came forward, and, and, and he was hungry for God. And we gave a prayer and an invitation to receive Christ. And he came forward, not just in tears, but weeping, sobbing. And I, and I laid hands on the man and I prayed for the man. And he prayed with me and he received Christ as Savior. And it was, it was exciting. I mean, it was, it was, it, we felt the presence of God and, and, and felt as though the Lord was at work. And he had certainly heard the gospel. He had certainly tasted the work of the Holy Spirit. He had seen the power of God, and it was very emotional. And he was a man who was desperate, desperate for God, desperate for transformation. But you know, I only saw him at church maybe one more time after that. And I tried reaching out to him to follow up, but he wasn't interested, wouldn't reconnect. And, and we, very soon, after, very soon after that, I mean, this was all a matter of a couple of weeks, we lost touch. And it was not until years later I ran into him again in the community. And after some pleasantries and catching up, I thought, I I got to just have this hard conversation. I said, man, what happened to you all those years ago? I said, do you remember those couple weeks you came to church? Do you remember you came up and, 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 and we prayed together and you received Christ? What happened with that? And here's what he said. I'll never forget this. He said, yeah, yeah. He said, I was at, I was at a major crisis point in my life. 
And I was dealing with some deep, deep hurt and pain and baggage from my childhood. And it was a super emotional time, and I was raw, and I was, I was, I was desperate. I, my life was, was, was tragic. I could barely function as a husband, as a father at my job, and I was looking for something, for anything to bring change, change, to bring change into my life. He said, but I, I've gone on to other things. He said, I found the peace and the healing that I was looking for, and, and, and I found meditation, which has been super helpful, and other forms of spirituality, and I'm, in a, I'm active in a support group. Here's a man so sad. He was so near to God. He was so near. The Lord was there. I have no doubt that the Lord was there. I have no doubt that he saw God, that he heard God. I have no doubt that he even tasted God. But he didn't embrace him, didn't receive him, didn't feast on the work of Christ. He didn't submit to Jesus as his Savior. It's tragic. Now, some people hear this. Some of you today may hear this, and you think, oh, my goodness, Is this me? Pastor Tim said it was a warning. Maybe he's talking about me. Maybe this is me. And you go back and you think. You think about what you did last weekend. And you think about the decisions you made. And you think about how you turned from the Lord. And how maybe this week you felt distant and uninterested and apathetic. And you haven't prayed and you haven't read the word. And now you sit here and you're reading this. And you think, oh, good Lord, is this me? The Bible says that that I, I cannot repent. That it's impossible to return again to repentance for somebody who has apostatized. Who has truly turned and fallen away from the faith. And many struggle with this, and I don't mean to make light of it because it's a very real thing, but let me assure you, as most of the scholars would assure you, if you are the type of person who is worried about this, this passage is not talking about you. Okay, if you are worried about it, that's a good sign. It's a good sign that, that you have not left the Lord, that you still care about the Lord, that you still desire him. This passage is talking about somebody who is so deceived, who is so overcome with evil and with a hard heart that they couldn't care less. Couldn't care less whether or not God is real, whether or not God truly wants them, whether they've left God or ever had God or ever didn't have God. They aren't worried about whether or not they can come back to God because tragically they view God as their enemy. So friends, hear the warning of this passage, but also hear the reassurance that if you are worried... This is not talking about you. That is the Holy Spirit calling your heart, convicting your heart. See, guilt and shame drive you away from God. Conviction pulls you toward God to draw near to the throne of grace that you might find grace and receive mercy in time of need. And so if you're here this morning in a time of need, come back to the throne of grace. Come back to Christ and receive forgiveness. But we all need to hear this warning. And again, the warning is not to stir fear in you. It's not a warning to stir insecurity in you that you walk out of here thinking, maybe I don't really believe Jesus. It's a warning that is intended to stir up faith. Amen? Intended to stir up hope. Intended to stir up obedience that you might bear fruit. That you might bear fruit as a true son or daughter of God. And that's the analogy in verse 7. We'll wrap up this section here in a minute. But he, he closes out this section with a different picture. It's a picture of a field. It says, imagine a, lot of, a plot of farmland, a field, and, and the rains come and the field soaks up the rain and it produces a crop. And what happens when that crop grows up out of the ground? It's useful. It's what the farmer wanted. The farmer's happy about it. He's excited about it. The land did what it was supposed to do. It grew the crop that was planted. 
And so it says that land receives a blessing from God. But verse 8 says, what about a different piece of land that received the same rain and that same rain was soaked up into the ground? However, instead of producing a good crop, it only grows thorns and thistles rather than a useful crop. The passage says in verse 8 that that land is worthless. It's about to be cursed. The only really thing you can do with it is to burn it. You just got to burn out the thorns and the thistles so that you can start over again the next spring. And this is just another way to describe the the same thing. Someone who has tasted Christ's work, who has soaked up the rain, you might say, but failed to grow any crop. They fell away. Very similar to Jesus' parable of the sower. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus says, imagine some seed falls on good soil, other seed falls on rocky soil and thorny soil, and the rains came, and the seed begins to grow, but the the ground is rocky, and so it cannot grow downward, it cannot establish roots, it only grows upward. It springs up very quickly, actually, the parable says, and there's outward external growth above the surface, but very soon in the thorny ground... It gets choked out, and there's thorns and thistles that choke out the growth, and it dies. It dies before the plant can reach maturity, before it can produce a crop and bear fruit. Friends, listen. The difference between one who receives Christ and one who does not receive Christ is not response. It's not excitement. It's not emotion. It's not even initial growth. The difference between the good soil and the bad soil is whether or not it produces fruit, whether or not there's a grain that grows. See, both the rocky soil and the thorny soil receive the seed and grow, but they never see fruit. It's a temporary, superficial growth. But when the seed of the gospel, of the work of Christ is your Savior, who loves you, who died for you, who can give you life, who rose again, not only to give you eternal life, but to give you abundant life now, when that seed of the gospel takes root in your heart, it grows down deep and spreads out its root. It grows up strong and produces a crop. It bears the fruit of the Spirit in your life in an undeniable way. See, the true mark of a true believer is God's fruit. And this person can never fall away. This person can never fall away. See, listen, thankfully, God is the farmer, amen? We're just the crops. And so our assurance of salvation rests with him. And the scriptures teach very clearly that those who have been chosen by God, who belong to God, he will hold them until the end. Ephesians chapter 1, you can read it this afternoon, says that our Heavenly Father chose us in love before we were born, predestined us to grace before the foundation of the world, that we would be blameless in Christ upon his return. Romans 8 says that those who have been called by God will see glory. There's nothing that can separate us from, from God's love. Philippians 1, 6, that, that for those in whom God began a good work, if God began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion. Right? He's not distracted or half-hearted. He's not going to lay a foundation and then decide to move on to something else. If he began that work in your heart, he will bring it to completion. Listen to these words of Jesus in, in John chapter 10. Read along with me on the screen. Jesus himself says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Friends, the Word of God calls us and gives us the expectation that we can have full assurance of hope, full assurance of hope in our Father's strong grip. And no one and nothing can snatch those who truly belong to him out of his hands. And so we read Hebrews chapter 6 and we hear the warning, but we also hear this assurance of hope. And we see then this closing section. For those that have the assurance are also called to be diligent, to be diligent of faith. Let's, let's read this short section here, beginning in chapter 6, verse 9. As I said, in verses 4, 5, and 6, the author's been speaking about they, but now he returns here in verse 9 to you, and he says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel secure, we, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his, saint, for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises of God. And I would say this word to you, that my desire is that each one of you would have this same earnestness of faith, that you would have the full assurance of hope until the end. And so in verse 9, we read, look, that we're speaking about this hard word concerning those who fall away from Christ. But in your case, beloved sons and daughters of God, we are convinced of better things. We are confident that your outcome will be salvation. After all, verse 10 says, God is not unjust, is he? God is good. He's a just God. He's not going to overlook your work and, and forget who you really are. Because if you are truly a son or daughter of God, he has seen you. He has seen the love that you have for him. He has seen the love that you have, the verse says, for the name of Christ. And he has seen how the love that's in your heart overflows into ongoing faithful work, faithful servants for the saint. Have you seen this in others? Have you seen a man or a woman and you're like, I never even met them or talked to them, but I see their work. I see their love for, for the name of Christ and I see their service for the saints, the sons and daughters of God. And as we've said, this true faith of Christ, the true work of Christ always means true transformation, always means bearing Christ like fruit. It means a life, a spirit-filled life of work for the Lord, of love for the Lord. And so we hear this reassurance in verse 11, this promise in verse 11 that our desire is that each and every one of us, that we as a church family, as we as individual believers would have this same earnestness. To be earnest means that you're intense and you are diligent and you are attentive to the Lord, attentive to your own faith, guarding your heart, growing in maturity so that you will hold on to Christ with this full assurance, this full assurance of hope firm into the end. And so we're called in verse 12, be diligent. Brothers and sisters, be diligent. Hold this assurance firmly until the end. Why? So that you don't become sluggish. So that you don't become lazy. 
What's the opposite of somebody who trains hard, who's committed to constant practice, to committed to maturity of constant discipline and training in the faith? It's somebody who's lazy and sluggish. And so the author says, don't, don't be lazy and sluggish. Imitate the faith. Imitate the patience of those who inherit the promises of God. Now, next week, the very next verse, he's going to begin with the example of Abraham. Abraham, who was somebody who, who stood in faith, who was made righteous by faith and did inherit the promises of God. And whether it's Abraham, whether it's other saints in the word, we all need examples. We all need examples in this battle. Examples of those who have stood faith, who have stood diligent in their faith that we can imitate, imitate. Mark Jelovic, I'm probably not saying that right, but that was our speaker this weekend. So his son, Ben Jelovic, apparently is a nationally competitive, nationally ranked competitive figure skater. And he was our speaker this weekend. And if you know Dave Brady, Dave usually sits right about where CJ's sitting. And Dave Brady went to seminary with Mark years ago. No, he told me, 45 years ago. Known, they've known each other for 45 years. And, and this man, Mark, has dedicated his life to training and educating young men and women. And, and for, for about 20 years, he ran a discipleship program in Wisconsin. And this was a, a seminary-trained, educated man who moved from his seminary office out into the wilderness of Wisconsin, and he ran a discipleship program. And he would do seminary-level classes in the woods, and train them in survival skills, and train them in, in, in um, you know, outdoor adventure and activities. He, he now has reached an age where he's returned back to that seminary office, and he now teaches at a college in Philadelphia. And we began to hear from him this weekend, right, about the ups and downs of life. He shared with us about 10 years ago how his marriage went through a very, very trying season, and the Lord brought them through that. He shared with, them a little bit about, shared with us a little bit about raising his four sons, and here is a man who is faithful, who has been diligent, who has pressed through the ups and downs of life, and, and he shared about his friendship with Dave over the last 45 years, how they've remained close friends, how they pray together, they've held one another accountable, they've encouraged one another, and here's the best way I can describe it. And, and for those of you that, that scooted out early from the retreat and are here and, and know what I'm talking about, you can nod if you agree. I felt like this weekend, hearing from Mark was like listening to a, an old, old wise uncle. Do you feel that way? Who, who just, is just feeding your soul, telling you stories, bringing you the truth and the wisdom of God's word, and just soaking it up, right? A man who, whose faith and diligence and patience I hope to imitate. We all need faithful men and women in our life to imitate so that we would not wander. So that we would not wonder, do I truly belong to the Lord? So that we could find security in Christ as we see his grace and his faith at work in the lives of others. So that we could be people who are, who are sure, who have full assurance of faith. Friends, listen, the call this morning is for us to grow in maturity, to move from milk to meat, to train ourselves for godliness, to stand firm and confident in our love for Christ and in our service to his people. That we would not be people who just taste Christ. I pray that none of us Taste the work of Jesus, experience the gospel, and then spit it out to move on to something else. That we would feast on the fullness of Christ's work. That we then could offer the life 
giving food of the gospel to others, to others who are desperate, to others who are so hungry that have only ever tasted something that truly nourishes them, that, that if they see and if they receive the offer of something that can feast and nourish the deepest needs of their soul for meaning and purpose and forgiveness and identity and true life, this true food that nourishes. The call is to be diligent, brothers and sisters, to be diligent in your faith, to find those that are faithful and imitate them so that you and I would endure until the end. That we would not be among those who cower in the corner, among those who are insecure about their spiritual life, who are anxious about their state with God, but those who are confident, who are bold, because they know the only explanation for who I am, the only explanation for, for what God is doing is that He is truly at work. It's not me, it's Him at work in me. And so... With that hope, we ultimately look to Christ. Yes, others give us an example, but ultimately we look to Christ. I'm going to read for you from Hebrews chapter 12. The worship team is going to come up. But let's just set our hearts on what the Bible calls the founder and protector of our faith. We'll hit this, this verse probably after Christmas. But hear this call now as we seek to be men and women of full assurance. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and that's the witnesses of Scripture and, and the men and women around us, let us lay aside every weight, every distraction, every sin that clings so closely to us, and let us run, run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let's look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross for you and I. He despised the shame, and he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And the call now is for you and I to draw near to that same throne. The throne that he is seated at in victory, that we would draw near to the throne of grace. So let's stand up together in worship. Let's stand up together that we could be men and women with full assurance of hope. God, come now. And as we've heard your word, as we've, as we've chewed and hope, I hope swallowed and received your word, bring clarity, bring reassurance. As we rest securely in the work of Christ, give us hope, give us diligence, give us faith and perseverance that we could focus our eyes on Christ and run with endurance, nourished by your word, empowered by your Holy Spirit, encouraged with the men and women around us. Feed our souls that we could live for you, that we could walk in faith. Hear us as we pray and as we sing. Thank you, Lord.